Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And this is effectively the Halloween special of the Lanyard Podcast. We are going to be running down way too many movies that we've watched this October. I'm assuming most of it's going to be horror content. Definitely the main conversation is. And even though we've been cramming movies into our personal schedules, we also doubled up on the main topic. There's like literally too much to talk about. My brain is spinning. Also, because I am recording this right after ACAB Zine Fest, which was at Gasa Gasa today. Uh, if I met you there, thank you for listening. It's very nice to hear. It's very nice to be heard by you. <laughs> My brain is broken. And it's also very nice to hear Allie's voice in the pod today because she was not around last time. Oh, I wasn't. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back. I had an eye problem. I still have an eye problem, but I can see more now and I'm not in pain. So, yay. It is the season for ocular gore. You had a Lucio Pulci October. Oh, my my iris did some weird things. Um, And so it was like, it was wild. I, I truly had like some body horror stuff going on. It was it was kind of cool, actually. But extremely painful. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was. Have you managed to watch any movies with your warped eyeballs? I actually did. Ironically, the first one I watched after I could like see things again was um, Eyes Without a Face. Oh, how apropos. Yeah, it was a first time watch and I was very into it. It's so good. I had always heard it was great, but... It was so much better than I even expected. I I really enjoyed it. Um, So in that one, it's about this doctor whose daughter is in a horrible accident. And so he's been, I mean, I'm going to spoil it. He's been kidnapping women to take their faces off to give to his daughter. And yeah, of course, there's a lot of horror in that. And one of the scenes that like really struck me, because this movie is like from 1960. The part that really struck me is there is this scene of like face removal and it is so hardcore, like gory disgusting for that era. I was not expecting it. I was like, whoa. That's so funny. Like, I don't remember that. Like, I remember the like creepy mask that the daughter wears to obscure her face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She wears a creepy mask around a lot, which is great. Yeah. There's like a real in-depth face peel off scene. And they take which always is off. like surprising in stuff like before the 80s because you don't yeah. expect it it feels like there's like guardrails that should be there and stopping it from happening exactly. if you don't mind me billboarding this uh it's actually playing at britannia at canal place this thursday as part of their oh. wildwood series so if you're in new orleans you can go see it on the big screen definitely go see it oh my gosh it's so good and like you know i was watching it and i'm just kind of like well as much as this is like a really good face swap body horror, it's also kind of a really good fascist allegory about fascist Europe, which is interesting because like the dad is German and it's definitely heavily alluded to that he was a Nazi doctor. And basically at the end, the daughter like frees herself from the situation because she kind of realizes how fucked up it is. And it's just kind of like, you know, the idea of like Europe facing like everything that happened and everything that people allowed to happen during, you know, fascism in World War II. But at least that's the vibes I got. And maybe it's just because I listened to too many like podcasts about horrible people from history and all of that. But that was that was the vibes I got is like not only is this great from a ooh creepy face off um standpoint, 
it's also just like interesting uh, political allegory. I think pretty much any 20th century movie from Europe about disfiguration is probably affected by one of the two world wars, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's no way to divorce that. And having a German doctor uh, gruesomely experimenting on unsuspecting young women, um, it's hard to get away from the, the Nazi doctor parallels yeah, there. Bet. And then I also watched Prom Night with Jamie Lee Curtis. And I really enjoyed that one. I thought it was good, interesting sort of slasher. Also, just Jamie Lee Curtis is wonderful in it. She's just great in it. I think part of it that uh, got me, though, is they make these teen shitheads kind of slightly too likable. So basically, it's a slasher that takes place on, well, go figure, prom night. But it starts out with these bullies pushing a little girl out of a window and then hiding and never talking about it again. And so the slasher targets each of these people like once they're teenagers on their prom night. Kind of like class at Massacre High style. Yes, or exactly. Massacre at, Massacre at Central High. I'm going to get every fact wrong today. Yeah, Massacre at Central High style. I don't know. Have y'all seen this one? Yeah, I think it kind of has a bad reputation. I think because Jamie Lee Curtis was in... Like the definitive slasher of that era. Yes, people always yeah. compare it unfairly to they Halloween. Do. Yeah, but I th- I think it's pretty solid. I think the whole like disco prom yes climax uh really comes to a head, wink. Yeah, in it, a really uh <laughs> satisfying way. Yeah. Also, she's such a good dancer. Oh my god! I was like, what? She can dance. She's like a she a triple threat. I don't know. I don't know if she can sing, but she can certainly dance. It's amazing. Have you ever seen Perfect, Allie? No, I haven't. You have to at least watch the aerobics scene. Yeah, if you want to okay. see Jamie Lee Curtis do things with her body that ought to be illegal and impossible, that's the movie for you. I've never seen that movie, but I've seen the clip of her and Travolta like flirt aerobicizing um, probably a thousand times. Like It just pops up on social media like once a month, and I sit there and watch the whole thing. In fairness, that is uh, the the best part. It's not a great movie. A lot of it is very boring, but, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and say that Brandon is right. If you just watch that part, you'll still have a good time. Yeah, I mean, she's like an amazing dancer. I did not expect it. Like, that whole disco dance scene in, this, in Prom Night is just, it's fantastic. And then, you know, of course, there's the murders. But yeah, I, I think the kids in it are like a little bit too likable for, you know, because I feel like a lot of slashers, you're like, oh, yeah, they're killing those kids. OK, but in this movie, I'm like, no, I like them. They're kind of terrible, but like they're like realistically terrible. Once again, like Massacre at Central High, like I feel like I, I keep accidentally watching movies where it's just like, oh, no, that's just what being a teenager is like. And uh I'd probably be friends with these terrible, cringy people who are now getting murdered. It was interesting. I like, obviously, you know, Halloween is it's a better movie, but like having seen, you know, a ton of like cheap slashers at this point in my life, like it's not a bad one. It's not. It does have a four star review on swampflix.com. Put it that way. Yeah, it's a four star swampflixer. So, you know, it's fun. <laughs> Certified. And another one that I watched for the first time, and it's absolutely amazing and a masterpiece. Oh, my God. Multiple Maniacs. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, John Waters movie. Um, I don't even know how to sum up the plot for that one. It's kind of like a traveling circus, like freak show. 
Yeah, it starts out that way. And then Divine turns into Godzilla in the last half. <laughs> oh my god. It's responded yes. to by the Incredible. American military. Yes. It's so good. Just like there's so many parts to it where it's just kind of like yeah, it kind of does the thing where John Waters movies like fall apart at the end and suddenly Divine is like either shooting people or like walking down the street threateningly. Which is not a bad way to end movies. No. Is with a murder or divine walking threateningly down the street. Even if they start out without that. And in this one, the inciting incident is she's raped by a gigantic lobster. By lobster? Yeah. Which is in bad taste, but I mean, you're watching a John Waters movie. You have to I be was gonna say, a little bit. It was in bad taste, but, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it's un- not unexpected for some reason. It's, expe- it's unexpected, but at the same time, you're like, well, yeah, okay. I think my favorite part uh, is there is a uh, lesbian sex scene in a church where they talk through the stations of the cross and there's like flashes to like reenactments of the stations of the cross while also flashing back to like Binkstall and Divine having sex in a church. It's amazing. It is commonly known as the rosary job scene. Um. Yes, it is so good. <laughs> I it's maybe one of the best scenes in all of all of film history. Honestly, it's amazing. Agreed. I was like, I can't deal with how perfect this movie is. So that one, big recommendation. Um, of course, because we here at Swamp Flicks, we love some John Waters here. And the other thing that I finally got around to watching. Since I didn't get to participate with y'all in the last podcast, I did end up watching Exorcist 3. And I definitely agree with you, Brandon, when you said it was the best Exorcist movie. And the one thing that keeps standing out to me and I keep thinking about is that goddamn Fabio cameo. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's amazing. Just suddenly Fabio is there as this glorious angel. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) Is he still a celebrity in the like romance novel world? Like, just people no. still talk about him, like, because he is synonymous with romance novel covers in my brain. So he's still synonymous. Like, people still know like Fabio covers, but people have kind of like moved away from those. And I see in the uh, romance reader community, I see a lot of hate for them, and I'm just like, no. I love them. Like a lot of the covers I see these days are trash. And then I hear people complain about like the Otis Ripper, Fabio type overdramatic book covers. And I'm like, no, these are the best covers. That airbrushing is so much better than that like clip art self-published on Amazon look. Oh, yeah. With like no depth. But then there's also this thing that my friend uh, calls symbols where it's just like the title and then like it's kind of like what twilight started out with like the apple or like sometimes Uh, it's just like a crown or like a rose you know those books yeah that's kind of the big deal right now is the symbols and they've gotten kind of elaborate but i yearn from the day for the days of like pulpy fantasy art and fabio on book covers again the kind of art you would see like airbrush on the side of a van uh yes so that's about what i've been watching since i've had eyes again what have you been up to? I'll go ahead and start with the oldest thing chronologically, which is The Infernal Cauldron from 1903, which is Whoa. a Melies 
I am, you know, as a film person, I should know exactly how to properly pronounce that, but I, I might be doing it completely wrong. French is a nonsense language, so it's okay. I agree, but you know, someone's going to cancel us for having that correct opinion. Um, it's only about five minutes long, and there are a bunch of horror shorts on HBO or Max, formerly known as HBO right now, uh, from like the earliest days of film. And because they're very short, and because I am, as always, trying to bring the average year of my of my viewing every year down to as close to my birth year as possible, I was like, oh, let me watch something that's very short and that's over 120 years old. And I watched The Infernal Cauldron. I, I mean, there's not much to it. It's just a couple of minutes long. It's just a special effects you know, um, trial run for making people seem to go into and out of a cauldron and be turned into a puff of smoke. But, you know, we all need a little bit of education from time to time. So check out those old shorts if you are at all interested. If you want the feature length version of that, it sounds very Hexan. Hexan is like the, I think it's like a Swedish oh. movie about mental illness witchcraft. and witchcraft. Yeah. And it's got a bunch of, basically it's like using mental illness lecture as like an excuse to show like demonic imagery of early witchcraft and like people hopping into giant cauldrons and turning into pots of smoke or like lining up to kiss the devil's ass. Okay. It, it would be a mistake to say that this has a plot or a point other than just like <laughs> to test some like, you know, oh, let's test out this potential, you know, special effect. But I'll go ahead and talk about what I saw that came out this year. I watched a Tubi original called Sorry, Charlie. It is 75 minutes long and it's pretty decent. You know, the actual, so the plot of this one is there is a woman who is pregnant and is a work from home crisis phone call counselor. And she learns that the gentleman, which is the name that was given to the serial sexual assailant who was going around and trying to impregnate different women as like a serial criminal has been caught and is being brought to trial but she does not believe that the person that she sees on television as you know uh, being arraigned is in fact the person who attacked her and then as she is now approaching you know the actual date of birth for her child the gentleman, as he is called, returns to uh, stalk and harass her in her home. But it turns out that she, you know, uh, predicted that this would happen and has laid a trap for him. So uh, at 75 minutes, it's very short. It's short and sweet. If you're looking for just like a very um, non-challenging horror, you know, cheap thrill this Halloween is something that you don't have to pay too much attention to. I would definitely give it a recommendation. You know, it's not going to end up on anybody's top 10 list. That's for sure. But as far as a movie, that's, you know, a, a fine thing to watch while you're working out or um, balancing your checkbook, paying some bills <laughs> works out great. Uh, and I also saw the only thing on this list, I think that is not a horror or horror adjacent movie. I have now seen Mission Impossible 7, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, which I thoroughly enjoy. I will say, you know, I watched it with uh, my best friend and her boyfriend, and like 40 minutes into the movie, he was just giggling, because he was like... I thought, I, I, Brandon, did you see this one? 
Yeah, I uh, watched it as a double feature with Oppenheimer, the w- same way everyone did, right? Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and Possaheimer. And Mission Imparpable. <laughs> 40 minutes in, you know, uh, is the point where Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, has broken into Kittredge's office and knocked out everyone, including Carrie Elwes. And um, at that point, he was just laughing. He's like, this whole movie could have been an email up to this point. Like, Wait, the first- hold the phone, hold the phone. That scene is 40 minutes into that movie. Well, remember, there's the whole opening sequence with the Russian submarine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's like the third scene in the movie in my mind. 40 minutes is insane. But and then there's, there's a whole scene with Rebecca Ferguson and everything. And then the opening credits, like 15 or 20 minutes in. <laughs> it's a, It's very far into that movie because at that point, you know... Uh, they've already had their like, oh, this is who the crew is going to be in this movie scene on top of the very long sequence aboard the Russian sub. The Russian sub sequence you would think would be followed immediately by the opening credits of the movie, but you have to have Ethan and crew in the movie before you do the credits. So they have the whole, you know, uh, 2023 Hunt for Red October sequence, and then the Ethan and team sequence and then the opening credits. And then they get to the scene that we're talking about where it is all just a, an exchange of information um, that could have been an email as my friend uh, did say. So go ahead and give a shout out to him. Um, especially since I personally, I don't care. We've, we've talked about this many times. I don't care how long a movie is. I was never bored at all during this movie. I really enjoyed every sequence. Um, Oh, right. That's what it is. There's the dumb, not dumb, but the the Russian submarine sequence. And then the whole desert sequence, remember? Where (laughs) Tom Cruise has to ride the horse out into the desert. This movie has everything. It has wet and dry. (laughs) Wet and dry. And all before the credits start. Um, I don't like that um, one of my favorite characters in this franchise is supposedly dead as of this one. This is not the kind of franchise where these characters usually come back. It's not like <laughs> Fast and the Furious, where suddenly Michelle Rodriguez actually is alive. She's just been amnesiac. That's not going to happen um, in this uh, series of movies, I don't think. Um, I always love to see Peggy Carter. Uh, I always love to see Haley Outwell in anything. I'm a very big fan of hers. I think what I learned about what I do and don't like about this film series with this one, the realization I had is that I don't think that they should be true companions. Like I know that I've said so far that what I like more is the spy craft more than the action, even though the action is genuinely always very good, very exciting, very thrilling. Like they're doing stuff in real life that human beings should not do. Is Tom Cruise is a nut. My, I, I don't know if I've said this already on mic, but it's my theory that he is doing all of this to lay the groundwork so that during the filming of the next Mission Impossible movie, he can fake his death to get away from Scientology. <laughs> I think that he has decided that's his only way out. He can never <laughs> just leave. And his only way out is to die. So he's going to fake his death during the stunt for Mission Impossible 9. Frankly, L. Ron Hubbard would have been really into that idea too. So, yeah, kudos yeah. to him for this fake plot that we imagine. Following in his master's footsteps. 
Also, the brilliance of this idea is that that way the series never has to end. Because this film in particular is part of a really annoying trend this year where there's like two and a half hour plus movies that then end on a cliffhanger. So not only are they already obnoxiously long, but they're like half a movie. And you're supposed to like tune in two years from now to see how it all shakes out. What were the others this year? Was it Oppenheimer do that? that (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, the new Fast and Furious and also the new um, Across the Spider-Verse ends like halfway into the story and is like, tune in next time to see how Spidey gets out of this one. Oh my God. Same bat time, same bat channel, huh? Exactly. I didn't mind it in the Mission Impossible context, though, just because like my critical facilities with these movies is just like shot. Like I just enjoy the stupid stunts where he's daring us to watch him die on film. Or, you know, fake die, depending on how it all shakes out. Right. And also, like, I kind of have grown to love this little fake community he's gathered over the course of the series. Like, there was a moment in this one where not all of them are on his side, but he was just surrounded by so many badass women, like, between Hallie Atwell and Vanessa Kirby and and Rebecca Ferguson. And um, Palm Clementine as well. Were they the one that was like really good at fighting? That was like a kind of silent character because that person yes. was awesome. Yeah, Paris. Yeah, very cool. So yeah, I was just watching like this man who is an egomaniac, and all of it is about how cool he looks while he's like defying the laws of physics. Uh, but also like, there's still room in the series for that hero worship to like go to the side a little bit and kind of highlight all these like badass women who are like just as cool to watch. So I felt very like warm about that. Uh, yeah, it was just a great popcorn movie. I know that I have mentioned that, like, I, I love the first one and that I love the spy craft in that one. And that it's very annoying to me that they're all like save the world movies after that. The first one is very, you know, in its own way, low stakes. And it's also like very much a product of its time and that it has that sort of like post cold war pre 9-11 like golden eye feel in a lot of ways where you know you're not trying to stop a nuclear bomb you're trying to just like prevent the release of information about spies and like that does not work as like the plot of a big mainstream you know big budget movie though you know now like it did in 1996 in addition to that movie also like being a de palma movie and, you know, not having to bear the weight of being like a franchise starter, just being like one more example of a 90s reboot, if you get right down to it. And that's how we would talk about it if it had not kicked off a franchise. But I realize in, in this one, I think what I dislike about the narrative most is not just how action focused or high stakes it has become. It's that I don't think this group of people should be true companions. I would think this is a much more interesting film series if these people just were like co-workers. Like maybe Tom and Ving Rhames are like really good friends. But the rest of them, I think I would enjoy it more if their relationship was purely professional. I think they're friends because they have no life outside their job. It's kind of like that sad person in your office who wants to talk the eight full hours you're at work together because they have no one else to talk to outside their like spouse and kids at home. You know what I'm saying? They are work yeah. friends because they have no life outside work. And and I get that. But like, I don't find it compelling that this whole thing is like Ethan Hunt loves all mankind. He loves his crew and he loves humanity. He loves the planet. 
especially because like they are not consistent with what he his characterization is in the way that other characters refer to him in the sixth one alec baldwin refers to ethan hunt as the live as the living personification of destiny and in this one somebody refers to him as the uh embodiment of chaos and those two things are not synonymous. Those are, you can't be destiny and chaos. They're opposites. I guess uh, from years of watching Fast and Furious, consistency is not what I look for in this kind of movie, I guess. Uh, I don't really care. There was a okay. character in this one that I thought was like a villain from like four movies ago that I'd just forgotten. And it turns out he had never been in the f- series before. And uh, once I realized that, I was like, wow, nothing really matters in these besides the stunts. I mean, I have speed run through these where I've watched all seven of them over the past, like, two months. Who was the person that you thought was a villain previously? Uh, I think it's like Vanessa Kirby's like big bad guy who's like trying to get the evil uh, iTunes screensaver back from Ethan. Hunt. Oh, I don't know. Isai e- Morales. Sure. Gabriel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's in Free Jack. And uh, I also know him from the long running science fiction television program Capricut. sorry i know we're wasting time we have a lot to get to so that's all i have to say about mission impossible 7 love Haley atwell um i love rebecca ferguson i think that tom cruise is trying to fake his own death um, <laughs> i saw a, a 2008 australian horror movie called lake mungo oh i've heard of this one it's good. Like as far as found footage movies go, it's not. It's one that plays very much like an episode of Forensic Files or something like that, with uh, with creepy twists. And so the plot of this one is that this uh, nuclear family, uh, mom, dad, teen son, teen daughter, they go up to like a dam, like a lake at Lake Mungo. Or, no, not at Lake Mungo, some other lake, because Lake Mungo comes later in the plot, sorry. Um, and the daughter drowns during like an outing um, in the middle of summer, which is close to Christmas there. Then they start to notice that the son, who has gotten really into photography, that there appears to be some kind of specter, which they believe to be the ghost of the daughter, um, in several photographs that were taken after her death. But then it takes another twist, and then another one, and then another one. And I genuinely did not see them coming. The way that it continues to like turn the screw of what is actually happening to where, is it a specter? Okay, maybe not. It might be a hoax. or uh, But actually, their house was definitely broken into by someone who was wanting, uh, who was there for a reason, you know? And so I, I don't want to say any more than that because I don't want to give it away, but it is genuinely one of the best found footage movies I've ever seen. It was probably 10 years or so, you know, not quite after um, the Blair Witch Project. And this is the only one I've ever seen that I think is almost as good. I would definitely give it a big recommendation. Um, it's easy to find right now. It wanders in and out of being um accessible being that it's like over 15 years old it's kind of shot on digital it's you know it's rights in the u.s come and come and go because it's an australian film right now it's available on a couple of different streaming services and easy to find and i would say definitely try to get a hold of it and give it a chance 
before it disappears. And then I've got two more. I'm going to be quick as I can. Uh, I saw a movie that I know you enjoyed, Brandon, an A24 horror comedy entitled Life After Beth. Oh, my God. I saw that like literally a decade ago. But yes, (laughs) I did enjoy it at the time. You know, while I was watching these, I was considering writing up about them. And that was one that did not get a review, but that did end up on your top 10 list for that year. One of the very first things posted on Swapflix.com was like my best of the year from the year before. And in general, I like that director Jeff Baina most more than most people do. Like I really liked Horse Girl and Joshi, his movie The Little Hours. Those are all like great films to me that like get kind of tepid responses from other people. Well, Horse Girl was one of our first things that we ever discussed when it was just you and me on the Lanyap episodes before Allie joined us way, way back when. And we both really loved that one. I also really enjoyed The Little Hours. Uh, We talked about that a little bit, maybe even on that Horse Girl podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was very funny. I really like Dane DeHaan. Uh, I know that he's had a pretty mixed reception. He was supposed to be like the hot new shit after Chronicle. And then he made like, what is it? Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets? There was Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets was like the left hook, and then like the right hook knockout was um oh, the one where he goes to the healing fountain and it's full of eels. What is this movie? Oh, 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 Cure for Wellness, right? Cure for Wellness, yes, thank you. Yeah. The, that was a one-two punch that really like knocked him out of like the the realm of being able to, you know, be considered as a leading man. And I think it's a shame because he's very funny in this. Uh, I really love Matthew Gray Goobler in this. Um, he was very funny as uh, Dane DeHaan's sort of like crypto fascist, uh, local security, loves to clean his gun, like local security officer, right wing big brother, who was just like ready for the zombie apocalypse, the kind who's like fantasizes about the opportunity to mow down his neighbors with you know, impunity. But of course, Aubrey Plaza is just absolutely wonderful in this. She's so funny. She, I I can't recommend it enough. It's one that I remember coming out and I missed it. And then nobody ever talks about it anymore. Even as they talk about like A24 and horror and elevated this and that, uh, I find that very disappointing that it has disappeared from um, public consciousness. I give it a big recommendation for that as well. Uh- to be clear, not an elevated horror movie from them. That is like no, no, a it's horror not. comedy about a guy, if I'm remembering correctly, who like won't let go of this dead relationship that's like past its prime and obviously over. But it's through the metaphor of her being literally dead. Like she's like an undead girlfriend. And his yeah. like inability to move on becomes this like literalized toxic zombie relationship yeah sorry we didn't describe the plot of this one at all uh yeah (laughs) dane dehan it's like i guess they're supposed to be in college in their like early 20s uh and his girlfriend with whom we later learn he's just recently had a discussion about you know maybe taking a break she gets bitten by a rattlesnake or something on a hike and dies like right at the beginning of the movie and then she comes back, and her parents, who uh, are Molly Shannon and John C. Riley, they initially try to keep from DeHaan's character that Beth has returned to life. And then uh, he eventually forces her out, and 
uh, into the world again. And it's, you know, he tries to rekindle this relationship and then she eventually, you know, she slowly becomes more and more like the typical uh, shambling undead. I enjoyed a couple of really funny bits about the zombie mythology in this one, specifically that they are pacified by light jazz. (laughs) and that they are obsessed with attics and specifically like kind of building mud like walls in attics like all of them have the same weird obsession it's a very small like detail but one that i I, that has stuck with me um in the week since i saw this it's very funny to me there is one other detail that i have still um held on to all these years too which is i believe gary marshall has like an all-time great cameo in that film even though it's like just a couple minutes like almost steals the movie for me is he the grandfather yes oh okay i i recognized him but through all the zombie makeup i couldn't make an identification gary marshall in that movie and in hocus pocus like maybe three minutes a piece between the two films and uh it's like such a big personality and he's so funny and warm in both cases yeah put a big smile on my face yeah absolutely loved it uh i'm not sure where i saw it but it was something that was on either max or maybe even tubi so the people streaming service um and then finally i saw uh, a cronenberg that i never finished before and that i think might be one of my absolute favorites, The Brood from 1979. I love The Brood. Oh my it's god. It's so good. I think that I think that people think of it as a lesser Cronenberg, but it was astonishing. It's pretty scary too. Like I remember being like pretty startled by it, even with like it being like I don't know. I guess there's like some corniness to it that people like to laugh about, but like, no, I really love the brood. Brandon, are you familiar with this one? I've actually been like kind of worried about watching this one. I I haven't seen it before, but I know it's like his like divorce movie. I think the reputation it has almost is like it goes so far into his like bickering with his wife that it like turns into misogyny. So I'm not like saying I I haven't watched it as like boycott, but it's been like I've never been in the mood to watch The Brood (laughs) because it seemed like a really rough watch, you know? Uh, I get that. I, I, you know, sometimes you end up with something like True Lies or um, Temple of Doom or, you know, The Brood when you're making your divorce movie. Uh, And then sometimes you make a possession. A masterpiece. Yeah. So on that scale, it's closer to a possession than it is to a True Lies, um, for sure. Uh, The plot of this one is that um, there is a psychologist who is pioneering a new form of, I guess, sort of confrontation therapy called uh, Soma Free, or that's the name of his, uh, his facility. And it, he, it has some newfangled, like new agey late seventies name, but essentially it's a way for his patients to externally manifest their negative emotions, usually through, um, wounds that appear on their own body. So one that we see is that there was a guy who, as a child, was burned with cigarettes by his father. And in therapy in front of a, a room of people, Oliver Reed takes on this personification of his father so that basically this guy can manifest the wounds of his earlier abuse and then like sort of as a, a way of um, purging 
uh, these negative emotions. And our main character is a man whose wife is currently undergoing um, care at this facility. And he goes to collect uh, their daughter after her custody weekend and the daughter is injured. So he tries to get the police involved, you know, as far as like not wanting his daughter to go back to this place where, as far as he knows, she's been psychologically abused or uh, physically abused rather. But then it turns out that like there there's, there's monsters afoot. Um, the first one who is killed is actually um, the wife's mother, the main character's mother-in-law. She, I would say, is actually, if if you were just to be like, wow, someone's making uh, this movie kind of misogynistic, I would say it's more critical of her than it even is of the main character's wife. Um, yeah. Because she is like a, she is a parody of like a drunken uh, has-been. Whereas the wife, uh, her whole deal is like, it's so inhuman that you can't even call it critical of the human condition almost. I mean, there's definitely, like, a sense of uh, misogyny to it, but it's so, like, couched in this fantastic, like, body horror that it's almost, it's hard to, like, really condemn this movie just because I, just the, the body horror in this one is some of my favorite that I've ever seen by him other than, like, you know, Videodrome. Yeah, it's used so much more sparingly. Yeah, it's used sparingly, but then when it is used, it's just... It makes it more effective, almost, in some ways. Yeah. Like, yes, there's 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 an element of misogyny there, for sure. But, like, the fact that it is, like, a grotesque sort of thing makes it feel less misogynistic to me. But, like, it is sort of a gender essentialist, like, view of, like, women as kind of, like, birthers, you know? Mm, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with art expressing like a bad thought. <laughs> exactly. I don't think it's a bad thing that, you know, Shivers has him doing like sexual assault imagery and like the spread of disease through that impulse in these like zombie hordes that are like becoming maniacally sexual with each other and like um, surrounding the people who have not yet been infected in this apartment building like that's coming from an ugly place within his psyche. And mm -hmm. I don't particularly enjoy watching that movie, but I, I don't think he's like, <laughs> it's not a cancelable offense. Not that I ever like disregard most people for that kind of thing. It's just like, I'm not, I just have never worked up the stomach to watch the brood. And I really should. Cause I, it sounds great. I didn't do a write up of it, but as you know, I, I keep track of what I watch and I give it a, a rating. I gave this one five stars. Um, it's, it's the highest ranked thing of what I've watched. Uh, since we met last. Okay, so we've been going for about an hour already. Who knows how long it is in the actual edit. And this is where I would usually trim down what I'm going to talk about to spare the audience. Like, I would usually, like, say one or two movies that have, like, come up that are interesting to me recently. But I'm not doing that today. I'm going to go full excess. This is where the podcast is going out of control. This is the Swamp Flicks of Wooden Clogs. Three and a half hours, baby. We're going all night. Oh, yeah. It's hands on a hard body for Swamp Flicks. It's like when your dad catches you smoking cigarettes and then makes you smoke the whole pack so you feel sick and you never want to listen to the show again. That's what's happening right now. Oh, well, yeah, it is. So I already mentioned uh, they're playing Eyes Without a Face this week at Britannia Canal Place, um, which 
is part of what I think is the best repertory programming I've ever seen in New Orleans in my lifetime. Like the amount of old school horror movies that are playing at Britannia Uptown and at the Broad is unfathomable. Like every day there is something exciting to see. Like either some classic you've seen tons of times, but never on the big screen or kind of an obscure movie from anywhere from like the thirties to the nineties that, you know, you just never caught up with. And I'm not going to list every movie that played, but I will list the seven movies I watched in a row. I went to the movie theaters for a full week. Every day I went out and saw a different film on the big screen. That's amazing. I'm so jealous of your life. <laughs> I broke the streak today because of the zine fest. So it's over, <laughs> but I had a great run. Uh, I'm going to do it in the order that I watched them. I went to Britannia on Sunday morning at their normal classic movies time slot, and they played Dracula's Daughter from 1936. It is a direct sequel to the Bela Lugosi Dracula. Which one is that? This is the lesbian one. Okay. Dracula's Daughter is a reluctant, petulant child. She does not want to take on the family name and business. Of Dracula. Yeah, of draining um, victims' blood on the streets of London. She does it every night and it feels great, but she feels bad about it. So she's kind of like a goth teen rebel. I'm saying teen. This woman's probably in her 20s or 30s playing this character. Uh, but she, she got, kind of acts like a rebellious teenager in that she wants to um, shirk the family name. Uh, it's known as the lesbian one, even though she does drain men and women equally. Uh, for the 1930s, there is a sequence where she picks up an artist model, like the starving woman off the street, and brings her back to her artist studio. And the way she gets the young girl to expose her neck to be drained is the, like this kind of seduction scene where she like feeds her, gives her a little wine to loosen her up, and then tells her she's going to be painted naked um, as like an artist model. And then once her neck is exposed, comes on to her more or less and like drains the blood out of her. Because all vampirism is inherently seductive and sexualized. And in a pre-code 30s movie, like that's pretty risque, I think, what they get away with in that same gender seduction scene what i want to say about it is that i've been watching a lot of these universal movies you'll notice the last few episodes of this podcast this month are all classic monsters like i've been talking about the wolfman next episode's gonna be frankenstein today we're doing dracula and frankenstein uh the, the, the sort of like famous monsters in the universal set i've been plowing through those and they all have tons of sequels that i really didn't know about like you hear about dracula's daughter and bride of frankenstein because they have like politics that are ahead of their time and like sexual innuendo and things like that, that are like, you're like, Oh, I'm, I can't believe they got away with that in the thirties. But what's really weird when you watch these movies is that they are kind of like a previously on same bat time, same bat channel style of storytelling where what blew my mind about Dracula's daughter is it starts with Van Helsing being arrested at the scene of Dracula's murder. <laughs> So it starts like seconds after Bela Lugosi getting stabbed in his casket and Van Helsing is um, arrested for the crime of killing this vampire and then Wait, has to convince really? the London police uh, throughout the movie that uh, there are vampires afoot uh, before Dracula's daughter can continue draining people. It's nuts. It sounds like a cross between Hotel Transylvania and the original Kolchak TV movie, The Night Stalker. <laughs> I'm sure they both took inspiration from the Universal stuff, which honestly, everything does. Like, that's yeah, what's so incredible does. about that Universal box set is when you watch it, you're like, oh, this is 
what horror filmmaking has turned into. Like all the tropes and images and themes and everything are all contained in a few films from the 30s and 40s. Is there a scene where, like, uh, you know, the people that Van Helsing cannot convince, who are the authorities, just get, like, fucked up by the vampire? You know, that kind of comeuppance does not happen. Huh. Because they are the police and the scientists. They're they're the good people uh, who are (laughs) maintaining law and order, you know? Uh, In the Night Stalker, um, nobody believes Kolchak that there's a vampire on the loose. And so they just show up with with guns and he takes like a hundred hits. It's very impressive for a TV movie from the 70s. (laughs) That vampire does not go down. Future episode of the show at some point should be. Oh my God, I would love that. But uh, yeah, I was like almost hooting and hollering in the theater when it fu- when I found out that Dracula's daughter starts like seconds after Dracula ends because I had already watched all the movies for our next episode for Frankenstein. And they're all like that. Like every movie connects immediately. Like the next scene is when the next movie starts. And it's got this like kind of MCU style, like continued storytelling or like, uh, you know, Halloween 2 starts with like Michael Myers, like just rising up immediately after being killed. Immediately, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, the blueprint for that is in these old Universal movies. Um, so I was very excited to see that. So they had set all of these movies for the month, and I was very excited to go bounce around to all these different horror films between the two theaters. And then Taylor Swift released a concert film that like cleared the schedule. Like there was just nothing that wanted to compete with her. So the broad had more room to add more old school horror movies. And they added three digital restorations of Dario Argento films. You have my attention. And among them was my favorite Argento film. I went to go see Opera, Opera. from 1987 on the big screen. How was it? It was phenomenal. You know, I'm used to watching that on a laptop, either on like Daily Motion or YouTube or something like that. Like seeing what? it in like a 4K scan in a proper theater, because it is a very theatrical film, like very literally. Yeah. Uh, it was just incredible. It was like so fun to see something I value highly that is basically garbage to most people <laughs> presented in like a real way, you know? There's so many of his movies that have weird eye violence in them, but opera has like the purest, truest, like worst eye violence of his entire Man. oeuvre. Sounds like I need to watch it right now. Just to, <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Just for eye violence. <laughs> but also, I think about every time I go to look through a peephole, I think about Daria Nicolodi in that scene. Yeah, there's a um, corn freak on a leash style <laughs> shot of the uh, bullet leaving a gun barrel and then traveling through the peephole of a door into her eyeball uh, you watch it in real time really over the top filmmaking but yeah the mechanism that the killer uses as he's stalking an opera singer is he ties her up whenever she's with someone either a dear friend or a sexual partner or a collaborator at work uh, he ties her up and puts uh, with a strip of tape under her eyes that have pins pointing towards her eyeball so she cannot close her eyes and the killer makes her watch him work and it's the same like gloved masked killer from like any giallo film uh so it's a mystery who's doing this but uh it doesn't really matter it's the same as in every giallo film yeah especially argento ones it really doesn't 
you're just watching this woman watch death. It's like a whole voyeuristic, like double contrivance. And the mystery especially doesn't matter in this one because this is in that um, Inferno style of filmmaking from him where like there is no real plot to this movie or real point to it. It's just like a random assemblage of kill scene ideas. Okay, but is there a beautiful lady holding a cat? Because that's my favorite part of Inferno. I don't think so, but cats oh, will come okay. up later in this list of movies. Oh, good. If I get to oh, it. But it's just a random assemblage of ideas and images. I, I think what happened was he was hired to do a staging of an actual opera and kind of abandoned the project after brainstorming it and just used all his ideas that he like workshopped for this movie. So there's a lot of stagings of actual opera happening and then all this voyeurism of the killer in the crowd um, hiding among the tuxedos and gowns, like gazing at this opera singer and like trying to find ways to get her alone to like make her watch him work the way that he's watching her work on stage. Um, kind of insane that he eventually turned around and made an awful fan of the opera movie. Cause this is kind of a perfect one. Yeah. It's so strange that when he made a more literal, like translation of that text, he made not only his worst movie, but like possibly the worst movie of all time. And I'm taking your word on that because I've never seen it and I really want to now. Because revisiting this, I was like, how could he fuck it up? That one might be his worst movie. I think the reason that opera is his best is because freed from the plot, free from any cohesive ideas about staging an opera. It's, it's just like basically like his visual workbook of what he would have done. He is just nimble with this camera in a way that I've never seen before. Like a lot of the staging um, involves live crows or ravens on stage. And the camera often takes their point of view as they fly around the audience. And the camera just never calms down. Like every scene is following the bullet through the peephole or flying over the audience or like coming from high angles in bedroom scenes for like no reason or it's just constant movement all the time. And I find it really exhausting in a really exhilarating way. I, I think it's like a perfect movie from him. I agree. I agree. It's, it is in the top four for me. So I was very excited to go see that one. I was less excited to go see the creeping flesh from 1973 at the Britannia. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a surprise for me. I was like, basically it was a seventies horror film that I had never heard of before. It had like a kind of muted reputation among my like letterboxed mutuals, which I guess is my usual metric for quality right now. Uh, Cause I'm a man on the go. And so my expectations were basically in the trash, but I, I went to go see it just cause I had so much momentum of going to the theater every day, basically. And I think it's really good. It's, it's a British movie starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Oh, I've seen this one. Yeah, it is good. So they're both in The House That Dripped Blood, which we talked about last Halloween. Yeah. And you would kind of think this would fit in that like amicus style horror anthology or in the hammer horror literary tradition. Because that's like the two British like filmmaking studios from that era that are like associated with classic horror. You know, this is an independent studio that I'd never heard of before. And they, they don't have the stature that Hammer or Amicus does. But what I really liked about it is it kind of combined those two styles, like both the literary buttoned up kind of thing. And this is kind of like a Frankenstein tale um, about like mad scientists who go too far with like playing with DNA and, you know, 
microscopic evil. And it's also a amicus style anthology in that, you know, most hammer horrors are a little predictable because they're so rigidly literary that you kind of know where the story's going to go. And you're basically just taking in like the moody atmospherics, but not really like excited about what's happening. It's just like a good cozy horror vibe. And then the amicus movies are more in that um, it's more like binging a season of tales from the crypt. where like, it's a bunch of quick episodes. People get their comeuppance. And if you think a story is boring or uninteresting, don't worry about it. There's another one a few minutes down the line. The creeping flesh is kind of both of those things. It's like way too much for one story where both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee both play mad scientists. They're half brothers with each other who have a past that we have to like gradually find out what went wrong with them. And it's basically just professional rivalry where like Christopher Lee runs a mental institution where he is abusing and experimenting on his patients and looking for like what makes them criminally insane. Like what part of their physiology can be blamed for them doing violent things. And then um, Peter Cushing plays a mad scientist who discovers an ancient pre-human skeleton, this like primordial being that is huge. It, it looks like a gigantic primate. And uh, as he's studying it, it turns out that when you get it wet, it can regenerate flesh and comes back to life. Starts off with a finger that he severs off of the creature. And that turns into this like wriggling bloody pickle that like is just alive, you know, on the table separate from the rest of the body because it gets wet. And then eventually, you know, the thing gets rained on and turns into a monster. And the two of them are both studying evil. So he's also looking at the evil creature's blood under a microscope. And they both have escaped mental patients. The biggest, scariest, like pro wrestling statured lunatic from Christopher Lee's asylum gets out and starts hurting people in, you know, regular society in London. And then also Peter Cushing's daughter has this like maniacal horniness that he's, she's inherited from his, her mother and uh, breaks out of the house and just goes to town for the first time after living this very like cushioned life, decides to get drunk and hit on a bunch of sailors and eventually kill a few of them because she's so maniacally horny. She doesn't know what to do with herself. This movie's crazy. Like it's just got tons of ideas. It feels like five different stories crammed into one narrative when it really should just be like a kind of Frankenstein knockoff. And it's got way more going than that. Yeah, I agree. It's got a lot going on. Um, I just remember, just, I always enjoy Christopher Lee. You know, oh, yeah. especially when he's playing Sinister, which he almost always does. Yeah, no one rocks an evil goatee quite like him. Like, he really wears it well. He does. So yeah, I would recommend The Creeping Flesh if you're into Hammer Horror, but you think they move a little slow sometimes. You want to see something that's got more than just one idea. Like th this one kind of shifts gears often enough that it, you don't feel like you're stuck on one track. And uh, speaking of personal favorites that I never thought would play on the big screen, like opera, the broad also played Friday, the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan, which is my personal favorite Friday, the 13th movie. And is hated you by most love people. It. You love Jason taking Manhattan. Well, let I me, mean, let me clarify. I feel like I can see it now. Cause I mean, that sounds pretty good i've only seen the first one so you know i like muppets take manhattan so why not jason i should clarify it is my favorite friday the 13th movie i don't like the series very much <laughs> like that one and jason x are very fun to me 
but I'm I'm like exalting them over the standards in a series that I think is mostly pretty bunk. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Are we all in can agreement about this? Yeah. About Friday the thirteenth kind of sucking. Once again, I've only watched the first one, but from the first one, I'm like, I don't know if I want to continue it, which is why I haven't. It's like I might as well just be watching Psycho again. I guess. Yeah. You know, but reverse. It's reverse psycho. That's all. I think it's a reverse psycho also in the fact that like everybody knows it, just like they all know the ending to psycho. I think yeah. like once that became a trivia question in Scream, that's something that everybody knows now, even if they haven't seen the series. Those movies all blend together more than any others from any of those like big horror franchises. Like there's a huge yeah. difference between like Child's Play 2 and Bride of Chucky. There's a huge difference between like Dream Warriors and New Nightmare. Uh there's a huge difference between Halloween 2 and Halloween 5. There's not much difference between like any of the Friday the 13th movies. They all sort of run together. Lies. <laughs> Jason X and Jason Takes Manhattan have personality to them. These are the ones that stand out. No, I'm, 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 I, those are the exceptions that prove the rule. I don't okay. disagree. Okay. Those are like those are the ones that show that there's a difference. Like, uh, you know, I'm citing those specific examples as like major discrepancies, like major differences between two films in a series. But like, they're all all the films in those different series have their own personality and their own differences and are like memorable in a different way. Like, I don't actually know that I can say, oh, I have a fondness for Friday the 13th Part 4, because I'm not sure that's the right one. Like, I genuinely don't know, because they, they're always just in a marathon, and that's when you see them, and, you know, they all run together. They always, if they're going to show a marathon, they always start with two, because they just want to do the Jason ones, and they get bundled together in a package. And the one that I enjoy... Uh, is the one with uh, Crispin Glover. But I think that's four, and I'm not entirely certain. You're right that the Jason Takes Manhattan like has a concept that's, that makes it different and is great at it. It's just Jason on a boat, really. Yeah, that's the part people complain about. Like Horror nerds love to complain. I don't want to take this away from them. Like That's their oh, joy in life. They love it. But yeah. that movie is mistitled. It's a misleading title. It should have been called Jason Takes a Cruise because most of it is a like senior class trip to Manhattan from Crystal Lake, which is insane. But uh, they all get on a boat and there's a bunch of fun just like hanging out scenes. Like I'm thinking specifically of Matt Farley right now always talks about how he loves slashers but doesn't care about the violence. Like he likes just the weird character quirks in between the kill scenes and just seeing these like sub-professional actors kind of just like vamp because you can't afford to have Jason slashing all the time. So in this movie, like they're on a boat and each character has their own little hobby. Like some of them are doing Coke off of a mirror in the steam room. Some of them are recording a rock video in like the engine room of the ship. Uh, some of them are hosting an amateur boxing league. And uh, the girls are like getting horny watching the boys punch each other and get sweaty. It's a really fun slasher on a boat and Jason kills a bunch of people. And then once they run out of ideas for the boat, uh, they're in New York city and then he starts killing people there instead. So there's Jason on the subway or Jason drowning the most evil character in the movie, the principal in this like barrel of filth with like this dead rat in it. Uh, <laughs> like it gets really, oh, God. 
it's really grimy, like New York City in the 80s, like disgusting towards the end. And it's a great payoff to a pretty quirky slasher on the ride to it. I think it's a great film. You're not going to get an argument from us. You already name-checked the next movie I saw at the Broad, though. I went to go see Dream Warriors. Oh, oh yeah. Nightmare on <laughs> Elm Street 3. Nah, I like New Nightmare a little more, but they're both oh, very good. I agree. I think that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and then Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors and then New Nightmare form a perfect trilogy. They are a perfect trilogy of movies. They're the three that Wes Craven worked on, and they're the three that Heather Longenkamp is in. So Yeah. To me, those are the three that count. <laughs> Come on, there's there's fun stuff in the rest of them. Yeah, I I actually really like four, and and five has a lot going for it. But like those three form a perfect trilogy unto themselves. Four is fine, but I'm really into Dream Warriors. I can't I can't explain it. I'm just like, yeah, this is great. This is a good movie. <laughs> so I always remembered this being one of the better ones in the series as well. But like for the memorable kill scenes, like. This is starting to get into Freddy Krueger being like a catchphrase machine uh, where like it's not that he only shoves someone's head through a television. He says, welcome to primetime, bitch, and then shoves someone's head through a television, you know, or like mm-hmm. there's the scene in this one where someone is puppeteered by the veins in their arms as the marionette strings as Freddy's like in the sky above them, like operating their body. There's like really memorable, surreal violence in this film. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I, I, I'm really into it. And just generally, the dreamlike logic of the series, it's just a good series. Yeah, I, I think overall it is like one of the better, or if not the best, slasher franchise because the dream logic conceit of it allows people to be really imaginative with the violence. So even if it's the same story over and over again, where uh, this child molester who was killed by mob violence haunts his murderers in their children's dreams, um, <laughs> which this movie complicates in a really fucked up way by um, making it explicit that Freddie himself is the bastard son of a hundred maniacs and fills in a lot of details there that I did not remember. They're really fucked up. There's a lot of weird mom stuff in creative movies. I've noticed. Yeah. Over the years. But what really like struck me rewatching this one in theaters was like, the story matters more to me as an adult now than it ever did as a teenager growing up with it. So like Heather Longenkamp is the returning final girl and she is now a grad student who is studying dreams and dream disorders. Um, and she goes to a mental institution where teens are being hunted by Freddie in their dreams, just like her and her friends. Um, and she wants to help them before they all kill themselves under Freddie's influence. And there was something about the like amount of time that the other doctors in the hospital tell these kids that their ailments are their fault. Like these kids who are suicidal, who are addicted to drugs, who are insomniacs because they quote unquote suffer a group delusion about this Freddy Krueger figure, the boogeyman really started getting to me emotionally. And then when they like form this like, unit of solidarity where the final girl teaches them to lucid dream and like unleash all this power they have as like a, as a unit, you know, as a collective, I cried, I cried two or three times watching yeah. nightmare on Elm street three in the theater, <laughs> which I don't know if that was like a sign of me breaking down. Cause I've been like going to the movies so often that my brain's getting soft, but like it really affected no. me in a way I never had before. 
No, that's just the thing about that movie is there's oh, it's got that emotional punch for sure. I think that's why I like it that much. You're right. You're right. It is the misfit kids sticking together, trying to learn how to fight their demons aspect of it. That Yeah, it really gets you. Yeah. And like my favorite Freddy movies later after this, um, besides New Nightmare, which is kind of its own thing, you know? Right. I really like. Rachel Talele's, uh Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, which is like the wow. really goofball one. It okay. is a goofy movie. Uh, I really like the sort of slapstick 90s John Waters comedy to that film. But it's not this. Like, this is an actual story with characters that matter. The emotional beats matter. Yeah, and you're involved in Heather Loggenkamp's journey. And honestly, they do really bold things with her towards the end of the movie that I will not spoil in case people haven't seen it, but... It's, it's great stuff. Yeah. It's well-remembered for a reason. Uh, the next day, I saw a new film. I saw Dick's the Musical, <laughs> which I'm only mentioning because it's part of this streak. Um, I don't know if y'all have seen the ads for this movie, but like, no. they're kind yes. of a gamble. <laughs> like Watching the ad, I was like, I'm either going to hate or love this, but it's only 80 minutes, so it, it can't hurt me that much. It looks like Boomer Poison. It looks like something that <laughs> like would hurt you to watch. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it lo- <laughs> those those advertisements have been giving me psychic damage. Okay, so the movie is a stage musical adaptation and it has a lot of raunchy jokes in that it's like basically a remake of the parent trap set in New York City with like grown adult businessmen who are both gay actors playing straight characters. And the movie has a very like offensive on purpose gay sensibility to it. That kind of works. Like the jokes are funny, but they're all in Broadway musical song form. I think that kind of hurts it structurally, where like a song starts and you get the punchline of the song pretty early. You're like, oh, I get why this is funny. And then you have to listen to the whole song. <laughs> like the song playing out does not make the joke funnier. It's like, oh, we're just following the beats of how a full length song with this joke would work out because that's what happens in Broadway plays. So I don't think the movie's like exceptionally great. I did smile a lot. I laughed a few times. But if you've seen the trailer, there's one set of characters that I think are phenomenal. And maybe the characters of the year, which are the sewer boys. <laughs> so Love it. the parents that these, uh, these identical twins are um, getting together are played by Megan Mullally and Nathan Lane. And Nathan Lane... As the dad, his like secret that he reveals to his family is that he's gay, which everyone kind of knows, but he just hasn't come out and said it, you know? And in his big musical number where he explains that he's gay and what that means, he sort of like explains like, oh, you know, my relationship with your mother didn't really work out because I was constantly having sex with men and also because I fell in love with the sewer boys. And they kind of equate the sewer boys with gay culture. Like that is part of his gayness is these characters that he found while on a safari in the sewers underneath Manhattan. And then these two little gray puppet goblins that um, every time he adds more detail into the sewer boys family structure and physiology and how they eat and like what they mean to him as like surrogate children had me crying laughing. If the whole movie had been a sewer boys musical, I think it would have been fantastic. As a small part of a movie that like has a few good jokes, you know, it was fine overall. I'm not, I'm not like 
recommending necessarily that anyone goes to see Dick's the Musical. I, d- I just will say if the Sewer Boys reveal in the trailer made you laugh, there's a lot of Sewer Boys content and it is constantly funny. Every single time they pop up, I, w- I was just really pleased. And then um, speaking of irreverent content, I, uh, I went to the Britannia. This is my last one. I really have been filibustering here. I went to see this movie from 1963 that goes by several English names. Uh, it's called The Cat Who Came Back, The Cat Who Wore Sunglasses, The Yay. Cassandra Cat. Oh. So this is a Czech film that was recently restored. I think personally that its restoration was either boosted or inspired by a viral tweet where someone talked about their professor who was a Czechoslovakian filmmaker was like bragging about this movie he made about a cat who wore sunglasses called The Cat Who Wore Sunglasses. I think that viral tweet really boosted the reputation of this film. It is very good. It is about a small village where there's this teacher who's trying to teach his kids like creative inspiration and the value of friendship and honesty and, you know, basically how to be good comrades. And his boss, the principal is this really uptight, no imagination loser. It's basically like a little, little fascist with like a little tyrannical fiefdom that he like lords over. And the teacher's very frustrated because he can't really like open the kids up to as much power and imagination as he wants to. And then this magical circus comes to town out of nowhere. <laughs> and the circus has a magician. It has a trapeze artist. It has a army of kind of puppeteers who wear these like black morph suits. You never see any of their actual features. You like only see them working in the background and moving stuff around. And the main attraction, in addition to all these minor attractions, is the cat who wore sunglasses. The cat looks really cool. It's a real cat, you know? It's a cat actor wearing sunglasses. And whenever you take the sunglasses off, the cat, whoever he looks at, reveals their true nature. Does the cat take the sunglasses off, like, itself? No, other characters take the sunglasses off the cat. So, like... Okay, okay. Other characters, like, weaponize the cat's ability to reveal people's true natures. So, like... I just needed to know it wasn't, like, a Toons' hand taking the glasses <laughs> off. Okay. I mean, that sounds very cute, too. They could have gone for that. <laughs> I'm with it. Okay. So, they take the cat's sunglasses off. He looks at the principal, and the principal glows purple. And, like, that purple, like, mood ring glow is supposed to, like, show that he is, like, a careerist who will fuck over his fellow comrades for opportunities and is just not a good citizen, you know? Or if the cat looks at two people who are having an adulterous affair, they glow yellow. So now everyone suddenly knows that those are people who are having an affair. Like, it just kind of exposes people, you know? Um, And it also exposes people's good side, too. When people glow red, that means that they're a lover, and like that's like the best thing you can be. Like uh, people start dancing and getting really ecstatic and you know passionate with each other. Uh, you know, it's a children's film. I, I kind of made it sound like they had a big orgy in the square, like at the end of Perfume. That's not what happened. Uh, they just yeah, kind of dance around and like have fun, you know. And eventually, the cat is released among the children, and so the children are weaponizing this cat against all these adults in their lives, and like the adults are like cowering while these kids like reveal the adult's true nature and it starts with like a mass walkout where like the kids like refuse to go to class um until the the cat is returned to them so it ends up being this like children's movie that teaches kids about like solidarity among each other and like class action you know and also about like how adults can be like 
liars and cheats and like you're not necessarily served well by trusting them blindly like they have faults and they're they're kind of hiding themselves from you and then it's also like a movie about how cats are like excellent judges of character and just this cat like glaring at people and like making them show their ass is very fun and cute uh and you know literally very colorful like in the large group scenes where people are all exposed all at once you know it's like people glowing all these different rainbow colors and dancing around in the square and uh the kids run around uh, as part of their protest with like all of their cat portraits that they've painted in class you know sort of just like parading around their imagination in town as like a political act uh it's just a really beautiful imaginative children's film i just felt this week like i had experienced what people in like Cities with real rep scenes get all the time. Like you live in Austin, people in New York, Toronto, Chicago, San Francisco. Portland even we get a lot. Yeah. So like New Orleans has a few rep screenings every month that are like worthwhile. The Britannia does a good job on Sunday mornings of programming like Turner Classic Movies style like classics, but not like this, not like stuff that specifically speaks to me and is just playing all the time. It's like a, a strange taste of a beautiful life where I have no money because I'm always at the theater. are you going to say to the people who say this is not the, the creature I know from the Boris Karloff days? I'd say that uh, if you read Mary Shelley's book she leaves so much open to the imagination that it's up to the reader or the interpreter or the director or the play director or the whatever the person who interprets it to bring their own creature to bear and I hope that uh, we've met up with some of Mary Shelley's criteria for, for what this thing should look like but uh, you know it's such a special book and a special story that I think uh, Maybe the ideal creature rests in everybody's imaginations, but I'd like to think that ours might be in there with the best of them. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we just could know what Mary Shelley would think about this? Uh, and maybe one day we will. Who yeah, knows? maybe when we, yeah, maybe if we ever make it to the other side, we'll, uh, perhaps we won't have to. We're so close to never having to die, you know, as this story tells us, that we won't meet her. But I'd be most intrigued to know what she thought. So I'm about to talk about two movies that people think it lumped together just because of their titles. Uh, this is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula, which both came out in the 1990s as this sort of like return to the source text. Like they're both like dialing the clock back before the Universal Monsters wave with Karloff and Lugosi. Like, let's go back to the original novels these were based off of, which is kind of how they're both presented. And you'll see them combined in like Blu-ray combo packs and like the bargain bin, you know, like they're kind of sold as a pair. And I think the assumption is that they were just sort of similar movies that get paired off because of their titles. Watching them for this episode and doing a little research, and I bought one of those Blu-ray combo packs, so I listened to all the special features with Francis Ford Coppola in particular. Uh, these were actually like part of the same intellectual project. What happened was Winona Ryder was supposed to be in The Godfather Part 3, and then she dropped out very late into the process of making that movie and left Francis Ford Coppola kind of out to dry. And he ended up replacing her in the movie with his own daughter, Sofia Coppola. And I think it was an embarrassment because she was not prepared for that role. 
it was considered a bad performance and thus like an embarrassing entry in that very beloved franchise that honestly I don't really care about that much. <laughs> but uh, it's been like a sticking point in his career, you know? And as somewhat of a mea culpa, Winona Ryder came to Coppola later and was like, I'm so sorry that happened. I want to work with you on, an, on a project, though. Here's something I think is interesting. And she brought him the already completed script for Bram Stoker's Dracula, which, like I said, is closer to the original novel than the universal style, which really boiled it down to its like essential bits for like a 70-minute run-through. He thought it was like a good project from like a creative standpoint that it would like make him money. He needed money at the time. Um, but, you know, it's not like it was like a work for hire thing where you like put no effort into it. He like made the best movie he could. He had very like interesting ideas about how to stage it. His main thoughts were like how much freedom to give his collaborators. He wanted visual artists to bring something elevated to the screen um, and like really make it like a strong visual piece. So the main two people that he really gave free reign to were Eiko Ashoka, who did the costumes on the movie. And his original idea was that it was going to be kind of like Derek Jarman's Edward II that we talked about on this podcast before, where there were going to be these really sparse sets, like almost like in a warehouse environment, and that the costumes would be very lavish. And those would be the visual art you focus on, like Sandy Powell's gowns in that Jarman film. Um, and that's not really what happened. It really goes back to like the castles and you know the gothic setting that you really expect from a Dracula tale. But it also has these really lavish costumes, which really break the Lugosi image. It's not your typical Dracula movie. I think Gary Oldman goes through like 50 transformations in this film as Dracula as it goes along and like really wears outrageous stuff. And it's really beautiful art. And then the other collaborator that he like gave a lot of free reign to was his own son. Roman Coppola, who he hired after um, having some disagreements with production crews on how to stage this film, because what a lot of people were moving towards in the 90s was computer graphics. And what Coppola wanted to do was kind of closer to the Georges Méliès style that Boomer was talking about earlier, that like early magician style of filmmaking. It's like how much practical in-camera effects can we do that would have been popular around the time this novel was first popular in the early 20th century. So like there's a, there's a scene in Dracula where um, Gary Oldman takes Monona Ryder to an early cinematech to see movies as like this newfangled magician's trick. And a lot of the visual effects in the movie as led by Roman Coppola are that style of illusion. So when you see Dracula's eyes appear in the sky while Keanu Reeves is taking a train ride to Transylvania, that's actually projected on a background. Or when you see that train travel across the top of Keanu Reeves's journal that he's writing, because um, it's, it's an epistolary novel, so he's writing back to his beloved. Um, that's literally a miniature train set that they filmed with a gigantic book right in front of it to make it look like it's one shot. And the story, I think, is a little stilted and like literary and... like. Um, kind of like buttoned up but the visual art is so over the top and over dramatic that it really is like a fine art piece yeah i don't know if this was a good movie but this was a cool movie it's a good movie it's just not like there's a thing about both of these movies and i know we haven't gotten to frankenstein yet but it applies to this one as well where they're both very like 
I don't want to use this word, but it is the best word I can think of for it is contrived. And that like, it's both very like artificial for both of them. Like both of them are very like creating their own world, which is awesome. And in one case, that world is very well considered and thoughtful yes. and every scene includes some kind of illusionary magic trick. They really brag about the in-camera effects in the special features for Dracula to the point where like when I watched the movie a second time after like listening to all these commentaries, I was like, wait a second. There's a scene in this movie where like Dracula's face transforms like six times and it's in that George Lucas morph style that they created for the movie Willow where like the 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 face morphs from one version to another and that's definitely 90s computer graphics. So like I, I don't even think they remembered that they actually used computers a little bit um, in addition to all the practical stuff they did. But for the most part, most of the movie is very thoughtful visually. Um, when they use a hand-cranked camera effect to make it look like old-timey footage when Dracula's walking the streets of London for the first time, that's actually an old Pathé camera that Coppola bought and like hand-cranked on set to give it a really authentic feel. You feel it. You feel yeah. the care. You feel the love. You feel it the like, experimentation. And then his next movie was going to be Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. While Dracula was in editing, he went into the studio to start crafting what would come of the next movie. And he got very frustrated with a lot of the same pushbacks he got from Dracula, where like studio execs were like, no, we don't make movies this way. We make them with computers now. We do this. We do that. And he, had, he was really exhausted fighting the same fights he had just won on the previous picture. And he quit. He uh, gave the project away to Kenneth Branagh, who I don't really care about Coppola that much. Like, I'm not a huge nerd about him. But this is not a fair fight if we're comparing these two movies. Like, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh is a complete hack in comparison to Francis Ford Coppola. And, like, all that care in each individual image, I was just saying, in Dracula, it's not in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Branagh's film, produced by Coppola's company, American Zoetrope, basically is like a masterpiece theater production of Mary Shelley's novel that then goes a few extra weird steps towards the end. And I was going to say, I, I think there's some parts of it that aren't just like, and I, I'm going to say it, like I thought that movie was slog mostly, but there are some parts that feel very like heartfelt and like weird. It, towards the end, it finally builds to something interesting. Um, Coppola's main note to Branagh was like, trim the first 25 minutes of this movie. Exactly. And get to yes. the lab where he's like animating dead flesh. That's what people want to see in your Frankenstein movie. Um, but instead, it's like a very episodic. It feels like television. Like it, would, it wouldn't be bad as like a PBS costume drama, but as like a feature film and especially as a follow up to the Dracula movie, it just feels very flat and uninteresting outside of the few scenes in the lab where Kenneth Branagh playing Dr. Frankenstein brings to life an anti-vaxxer corpse uh, played by Robert De Niro. This movie, I don't know. And then later on, I think in the part that really deviates from the book the most, brings Dr. Frankenstein's wife back to life, um, played by Helena Bonham Carter, um, as the bride of Frankenstein. And I, th I think that's the part where they're kind of mixing the Universal movies in with Mary Shelley's text a little bit more than the rest of the film. Yes. Well, yeah, they're in the novel. Frankenstein is asked by the monster to create a bride for him. And he goes all the way to the point of constructing a body 
and then destroys it. So it's it does fold those two characters together. But there is a you know, there is a an almost reanimated woman even in the original novel. Watching these two movies back to back. It does not benefit Frankenstein. <laughs> it does not benefit Frankenstein. And I guess that's what I was about to say was that there is like no room for hot takes here, really. The most no. I can say is that I think Kenneth Branagh might be a bit of a hack and not an interesting filmmaker in any way. Uh, yeah. And I think that I guess this is a hotter take. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is Francis Ford Coppola's best movie. It's a hot take except around here, I think, because I also agree. It is an exquisite work of visual art. Movies are a visual medium. He is in the art of moving pictures. And I think, yeah, it's like a, a high standard for that medium, the way this movie looks. And if you, if you need to compare anything, there's a scene where Kenneth Branagh's carrying his dead wife up the stairs to the lab to reanimate her. And as a visual flourish, they show the red train of her robe gliding up the steps. And it looks so puny and sad and uninteresting compared to all the flowing, beautiful red fabrics from the costume designs in Coppola's movie, which are each and to themselves exquisite works of art. Yes. So I have read Dracula, not recently, but like recently enough that I had remembered it. And I remember like watching this movie and being like, I like the things they changed to the book, but I also read romance novels. Would you call the Dracula film a bodice ripper? Because it kind of feels like that. Oh, yes. It's also a monster fucker movie. Um, <laughs> it's got all of the things. Because a lot of the, the drama of it is, you know, this young married couple, Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves, are being forced to be adulterous mm -hmm. because of the vampires. So, like, he's being held captive by Dracula's many wives in Transylvania while Dracula is seducing her back in, back in London. Yeah. Because she is supposedly the reincarnated version of his love from centuries ago, which might be the biggest deviation in yes. that adaptation. So if y'all want the romance community viewpoint on this, everybody cites this movie because of the uh, real bestial love scene with Dracula and Lucy. Um, believe it or not, that is the scene that uh, most romance novel people are like, I want recommendations like this. Oh, they have to watch that French movie I brought up recently, The Beast. I know. I I shared that with people. Oh, good, um, good. So... It's basically just that for 90 minutes. <laughs> if you want more of Don't that. Don't worry, everyone. I am saving the romance novel community uh, one movie at a time. Uh, Brandon, you've told me many times over the course of the low these many years that we've been writing and talking about movies that Kenneth Branagh is bad, actually. Yeah, this generally seems to be the, the point of view of Brandon, but also kind of myself. He is a uh, TV on the weekends movie maker for me. You know, I've always argued that that's not the case, and I think that I'm ready to admit defeat oh, with no. this movie. I, I, I think you're right. I think he he's a bad filmmaker. If there's any, like, thing to do here if you're going to compare the two movies it's just like what makes a director interesting we're like they're both work for hire in this case so like i guess the auteur theory would tell you that like what you're looking for is like what makes them like what's the touch that you see that is like coppola-esque or brana-esque and i don't even think like an auteurist read really works for dracula like that doesn't feel like any other coppola movies no it's more just like 
he is an actual accomplished visual stylist. And Branagh is basically someone who should be doing theater and not movies. Yes. All of his movies that I've seen have felt like stage plays. Yeah. It's masterpiece theater. And like, okay, I think some of my favorite scenes in this movie are him running around his lab and also being an absolute fucking disgusting maniac covered in like amniotic fluid wrestling nude with like Robert De Niro. Okay, the lube wrestling scene is very funny. I I don't know if it was intentionally funny, but it's great. Yeah, but like it's right after he creates the monster and he's trying to teach him how to stand up, and they're both in this big tub of lube and they can't stand up and they keep falling down over and over again. It's really good slapstick comedy. How many fucking births did he have to attend to get enough amniotic fluid? (laughs) Seven foot tall man. It's oh my god the the best sequence in this movie barely has anything to do with the monster. It's, it's from Frankenstein and uh, Elizabeth's arrival back to his like father's home. And then when his child brother goes missing and then is discovered. And then like the family servant's daughter is like immediately taken and like a lynch mob forms and hangs her. That is the best sequence in this movie, and it has almost nothing to do with the monster. I'm still going to argue for lube wrestling, but, you know, maybe I'm just a trash person. Look, I'm going to I'll say it. I'll say it loud, proud and right now. Kenneth Branagh is hot in this movie. Like it has that going for it. This movie is just an excuse for him to take his shirt off. It really feels like he went to the gym and then made this movie so that he could run around shirtless as much as possible. Yeah, he has the Fabio hair too. Like he has romance he does, novels, but no, he is hot in this, and he takes his shirt off constantly, and that is the plus side and of this movie. The other plus I'll give this one is that Helena Bottom Carter gives this movie so much class and distinction. Like she's not yet like Tim Burton's muse. She's like merchant ivory production accidentally spilled over into this. Like she classes up the whole thing in a way that the movie does not deserve. Which kind of almost makes a even stronger case for Branagh being a bit of a hack when like she is like a costume drama standard from this era. Like a lot of her early movies are set Centuries before she was born. Yes. <laughs> and she is phenomenal in all of them. Mm-hmm. And she's phenomenal here. But like, if you compare this with like Room with a View or something, like it kind of fails even as a costume drama. It, it, it doesn't feel like a real movie. Uh, it feels like TV, like I said earlier. She, it's this movie and Wuthering Heights. She's been in literary adaptations where she dies by being caught on fire. Her death scene is cool. I'm not going to lie. Her death scene is real cool. I'm just saying, like, she gets caught on fire a lot in her movies. She is acting the hell out of that last scene. That, like, her performance in that scene, her confusion, her fear, her, like, revelation, she is acting the hell out of it. It belongs in a better movie. It does. And frankly, there's not enough Bride of Frankenstein content in the original film either like in james whale's sequel to his own frankenstein movie the bride doesn't show up until the last like three minutes of the film infamously yeah yeah. i kind of felt the same way here like i kind of want to see her story i think i think she's definitely more compelling than what robert de niro's doing as the monster in his half you know yeah i think you know 
part of it is trying to like stay true to the book or whatever, which like is dumb. The book is a masterpiece. It's brilliant. Why try and like keep up with that? Like, that's the question of adaptation too. And I think that's probably a more interesting angle than autourism here is just like knowing when to stray from the text. And like, if you're adapting something for the screen for like a new medium, there's no point in telling the story beat for beat. Like that is a very lazy, unimaginative way to adapt anything to the screen. And like James Whale made a 70 minute Frankenstein movie in the thirties. That is perfect because it is a very distilled few images, big ideas, and like very spooky atmosphere. Cause there's a lot of room for those images to breathe. Even though it's 70 minutes, it feels more spacious and like less does, cramped. Yeah. And what Coppola did when he was making the Dracula film was early rehearsals. They read the entire book together as a group. They all sat down and read Dracula cover to cover. And then they started rehearsing for real, like actually doing the scenes. And then as they were rehearsing, they changed lines. They changed scenes. They like added things. They subtracted things. They were like really honed it in and like felt it out. And I'm not saying that his Dracula movie is that exciting as an adaptation either, but at least he had the good sense to like stray from the text a little bit and like try to see what would work with the actors he was working with. Significantly strays from the text and to his benefit. The novel does not have this whole, like, you're the reincarnation of my lover angle. Yeah, that's the biggest one. Yeah, it doesn't have any of that. And, you know, I love that. So I'm going to be like, no, I think you made good changes. I I will agree. (laughs) I mean, and I I know that you would love that. I I don't dislike it. But it, it is fascinating that both of these, like, the biggest derivations in both of these movies from the text is an attempt to give one of the like women characters more to do because both of these in both of these novels, women don't get to do a whole lot They're you know, more so in Frankenstein, even the, in the original text, but ironically, yes. Yeah. I wonder if that was even coming from a feminist standpoint where it's like, let's give women something to do and not just be like side characters. Or if that was like literally just, old Hollywood romance. Like the movie needs a romance angle for us to sell it. That felt very old Hollywood romance. And I mean, like if you're going to make a romance in it and make it more accurate to the book, it kind of feels like it should be a gay one, but you know, you can't do that in movies. Uh, And they get there. I mean, early scenes where uh, Gary Oldman is shaving Keanu Reeves. Like that's practically a sex scene. Yes. But we just see more, seduction with mina with winona Ryder's character once he realizes that she's the reincarnated version i get i guess the the gayer vampire movie from that era would would be an interview with a vampire and it goes from that more that full length i feel like this movie draws a lot on an oscar s winner tradition of being a love story about movies I'm, i'm talking about dracula here because you know we reference old movies continuously but specifically the biggest one referenced is during the carriage ride scene like there is no way to watch this carriage ride scene and not think of nosferatu and the carriage ride scene there like no way whatsoever well i mean those are based on the same novel they are but like nosferatu couldn't do that you know like they couldn't say it was dracula like they they had to change some things too i'm just saying like you could make the choice to not make it like nosferatu 
but it's still very much a love letter to that era of film. Like, obviously, like, the shadow puppets and the fighting in the beginning. It's very much like, a, you know, here's classic literature and classic film, which people who work in film and are, like, artists in film can't seem to get away from. They just, like, can't separate themselves from being, like, how much I love classic movies. I'm not a English major. Well, I mean, I am a movie nerd. I love that stuff too. I anytime oh, they did too. like double exposure, you know, where they show the rats crawling oh, upside down. Crawling upside down is such a good part. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's done in camera. Visual. It's just two shots double exposed on the same frame. It's very classically done. Um yeah. the scenes where Winona Ryder's friend uh Lucy comes back from the dead and she like is moving stilted in a very odd way and you realize that they're running the film backwards yeah it's an old-fashioned style of filmmaking but it's very effective and it's very romantic about film it's like not only is there this erotic nightmare happening like in the narrative but also there's this very romantic terror about the magic trick of watching movies and i I think that's why i love this genuinely like watching them talk about their visual references and their techniques and like how much care went into every single frame. I, I don't know. That makes me love Francis Ford Coppola more than I ever have before. And I don't think this is a project he's particularly proud of. That's interesting. Cause like that is always kind of why I've like been kind of fond of him. Like, because I, I do know a lot about his like process and how much he loves movies just generally. And like, yeah, I think it really, really shows in this one. But yeah, I do think this is more of like an, old movie lovers movie well it also basically boils down to like this movie has draculas in it and not uh vietnam helicopters or mobsters like this is just more my personal brand of bullshit yeah i know you just don't like war movies either so i mean i like apocalypse now i just don't really care about it it's not like a personal obsession in any way it's it's a perfectly fine film this is something mm-hmm. that I grew up with on TV a lot. Like this used to play on TV, I think in probably an expediated form. It was probably like edited down because it is a oh, long film. And it's a long film that is got some boobs. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's lot some of nudity boobs in this movie. It's not nudity. It's just boob. Yeah, there's a lot that's of boob. true. And he, he described it as an erotic nightmare. <laughs> it was like what he was it going is. for. Anytime you call a movie that, I'm going to be happy with it. Anytime you put Winona Ryder behind a typewriter, I'm going to call the movie a masterpiece. Uh, Between this and Little Women and um, Heather's, obviously. Oh, and Heather's, it's a journal, but I'm with you in spirit. (laughs) I want to see her at a writing desk. I love how the presence of Dracula in this movie is so evil that everything becomes, like, he's such an evil being that the world around him becomes like this eldritch nightmare where like gravity doesn't work and like even uh, he's so monstrously evil that even his shadow is enough to cause like a vase full of flowers to just like wilt to death instantaneously Mm -hmm. the way that his like shadow is out of sync with him all of it is very very cool like i really liked this so the shadow actually they did in real time too where like there was a separate actor lit from a different angle who was like acting as Gary Oldman's silhouette. And they said it it was very hard to film. Like it was, it sounded easy. And then when, once they started doing it, they're like, God, this is like impossible for him to like kind of move like him, but not stray too much. Just so it's like a little off putting. 
was like very difficult to nail. Oh my gosh. All of the visual effects in this, even so like that, uh, the flowers wilting is almost comical and cartoonish, but because it takes place in this movie where everything is in that same level of like in camera for the point of it being in camera camp, that it really sells it for me. Yeah. You know what? We were talking about like how maybe this isn't a good movie, but no, it's the camp of it. It does camp with class. I guess that combination of high and low brow is my sweet spot in general. Like a a lot of the complaints about the movie when it first came out was that it was over the top. I mean, which that's where I live. Like the, I love that Joel Schumacher quote where he says like, Oh honey, no one ever paid to see under the top. Like that's the style of filmmaking I'm always looking for. Is that like a static, everything is too much all of the time. And then on top of that, it's also a movie where everyone is dangerously horny and their horniness gets them in existential trouble at every turn. Like, Honestly, from like an, the abstract sense, this seems like something I wouldn't enjoy just because it's so grounded on a narrative level and it's so committed. It's not Suspiria or opera where it's like, you know, it, it's all these beautiful visual ideas unmoored from narrative. It is very strictly like scene to scene epistolary even, but that's kind of overridden by just how gorgeous it is. The costumes are constantly evolving. It's not just that this artist was given room to make a few statement pieces. It's like one scene, it's the Klimt, the kiss gown. Mm -hmm. That's those gold uh, rectangles uh, Gary Oldman's wearing. The other scene, it's him in his old form. When we first meet him before he starts sucking blood and becoming young again, uh, he has the silhouette of a praying mantis. He's very bug like Uh, Mm -hmm. later when Lucy, the friend is an undead bride. She has this like lizard collar on her, wedding gown and it's got this like white lace disc that is like surrounding her head kind of like a like the dinosaur that blinds newman in uh jersey park (laughs) uh yeah just the costumes are always doing the most in every scene and i guess the version of this that would be like perfect for me is that Derek jarman edward the second style where like yeah it's just like narratively looser and more sparse and like DIY around those costumes, but I don't really care. Like I, this kind of like gets past my defenses when it comes to like straightforward narratives. Um, And I was really just like in love with every image. And then when I think of the Kenneth Branagh film, I'm like, I guess I liked the self emulation scene at the end. And I guess I liked the electric eels and the lube wrestling. Like there's a few images spread throughout. It's so ugly. It's yeah. such an ugly it movie. Is. It's so it gray is. and dreary, and everyone has cholera. It's exhausting. Like, you can do ugly and gray while also making it good looking, and it is not. Like, okay, if you're going to try and capture the era and the book and all that, yeah, it was written in the year without a summer where that giant volcano eruption made everything ugly and gray but like you don't have to make it this miserable looking like oh my god like anybody who has watched a black and white movie knows that they can be beautiful like there's like no excuse can i say this is like really exposing my ass (laughs) like this is really like showing my shortcomings as like a movie viewer but like a lot of the reason i don't like westerns all that much is that 
it's just like a bunch of browns. <laughs> like the western setting in the American West is just like a series of like browns and grays. You're you're really not wrong. It's just visually dull to me. There were so many of them and they were churning them out so cheaply that like, you know, a lot of them just look like that. Yeah, even the great ones are in that same palette but the fact that mm-hmm. they're like you know westerns were like all that hollywood made it was like 80 percent of their output for like decades and they all just look like sand yeah you're not wrong like that does make the whole genre seem more exhausting and then when you get like johnny guitar with like joan crawford wearing like a pop of yellow and red it feels like a revelation you're like oh my god color <laughs> wow <laughs> And yeah, I guess the British version of that apparently is steampunk, where everything is just like coppers and stainless steel. I don't know. It's like really like uninteresting visual palette. It's not even the palette that bothers me. It is like there's very little composition to any of this. Like they're both almost like you take a theater set. But one is like a theater set with someone who is a filmmaker and one is a theater set with someone who is a stage director. Yeah. And also then you throw on top of it that it kind of feels like a vanity project with him taking off his shirt everywhere. Like, <laughs> and it makes it very like, okay. <laughs> I will All say right, the, the only other movie I really loved from him was Dead Again. Like, the only movie I've seen from kind of Brandon that I'll like stand up for is like an entertaining picture and is really over the top in a fun way is dead again. And he also plays the main character in that movie. And it's kind of a movie about how charming he is a little bit. <laughs> so he's not like uh, opposed to doing that. And maybe he was more interested in the acting than he was in the visual style. Like even, you know, we were talking about Helena bottom Carter earlier and like uh, the guy who played Amadeus <laughs> Mozart is, you know, charming as the bestie here yeah yeah but also the monster you know the idea of like rolling the image of frankenstein on screen back from the boris car lifestyle back to like what mary shelley wrote is the idea of like giving frankenstein or the monster its ability to speak and think and feel in a very articulate way mm-hmm. where like robert de niro teaches himself how to read and talk and he comes back to the man who created him he's like why did you make me why have you left me out in the streets to die of cholera like why anything why am i here why don't you love me is there anything that could love something as ugly as me and i guess that's like the interesting idea here it just arrives like way too late in the picture for me to care at all because i'm so bored stiff by the time it comes around so yeah, ultimately, I think Kenneth Branagh loves acting more than he loves filmmaking, I guess is the overall take on that. like He doesn't want to be told what to do. <laughs> he, yes. does, he wants to do the telling and the being. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes I get it if you're starting out and you don't have a friend who wants to be a director to just like direct your own movie so you can act. But like, you know, it's so far past that point. <laughs> yeah, De Niro had Scorsese, you know, putting him in great roles. Uh, for exactly. decades at a time, Kenneth Branagh had no one standing up for him um, outside of the theater world. You know, I'm sure he was in yeah, plenty of Shakespeare adaptations that we never saw on screen. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh just never found his Scorsese. Is what we're saying. I heard the filmmaking in A Haunting in Venice was more over the top and playful than most of his films, but only Boomer can speak to that in this group. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was more so than normal, but you know. 
that was all that kept it from being i think even i said it was like a masterpiece theater when we talked about it after i watched it and that was the only thing that kept it from being that way for me but see for i love a masterpiece theater adaptation of an agatha christie thing i don't yes like this i got (laughs) halfway through i had seen this movie before and the first time that you mentioned this movie to me brandon i was like manage your expectations and I got halfway through this and I was like, wow, actually, maybe I don't hate this movie. And then by the end of it, I was so mad. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I was mad. I wasn't mad at you. It's I'm mad at Kenneth. <laughs> Here's the deal. I bought this like box set, not box set. It's like the double pack Blu-ray because it was like used and cheap. And I was like, mm-hmm. if I'm ever going to watch Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's going to be in conjunction with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah, I should put some respect. By the way, we we have been shortening this to. I mean, we've been seeing the actual titles, yeah, but we've been shortening it to an uncomical degree because. Let me try it again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Go ahead. I bought that set because I knew that I would watch Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula many times in my life. I expected that watching Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein would be a one-time go. Um, So I kind of made y'all come along on that journey with me for that reason. This is the only time I was ever going to give this movie my time and attention. And it did not exceed expectations and, you know, break what I expected out of it. It it is exactly what it is the entire time. It never, even late in the film where it feels like some ideas are starting to cohere and you start to get a sense of why he wanted to do this adaptation, like beyond his own vanity and reasons to take his shirt off. Like even then it's like, you're so exhausted and over him and just want it to end that it doesn't matter. It's like too late. And I think in Bram Stoker and Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula <laughs> by the end, it also gets a little exhausting and it's like, I know where this is going. I know what's going to happen when but he does change the end as well. Like, I think there's enough twists and turns in the traditional, like Dracula tale. Sure. But it still feels like a story that like is on the rails and is going to a foreseeable conclusion. And all that's all that you can do is wait for it to play out. Mm-hmm. And even in that context, I was still just wowed by how beautiful it was the whole time. I didn't really care. Yeah. I think it's a great film. I, th- I think Bram Stoker's, I think Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's <laughs> Dracula <laughs> is a great film. Uh, maybe 90% of it is those beautiful costumes, but that's enough, you know? I, I'm just glad that we all crossed oceans of time to be here together tonight. Oh. To talk about. Um, 30 movies. Literally, I think it was 20, which is too much. You know what, though? This is, if we're going to talk about like a bunch of movies at any point in time, this is our time. It's October. Everybody's going to deal with it. I do feel like Halloween is the time to cram. It is. I try not to turn this into a full time horror blog and podcast because I think that's like a very limited way to look at movies. And we would get so bored. Yeah, we would. And, you know, A lot of people who do that work, it feels very promotional. It's like, my job Mm -hmm. is to work the horror beat. So when a new horror movie comes out, it's my job to promote that as a product and like make it profitable for people to make more. So like, I want people to go out and see Cobweb in 
July when it's being like dumped in Barbenheimer season. And, you know, I, I need more people to go out and check out these horror films. And I, I just don't think we're that kind of movie review website. But I do think that it is the genre that has the most room to experiment visually and even narratively where it is a bankable genre. People always show up for it because there are so many people who are so committed like that. And because of that, it gives people a lot of room to be creative in the stories they tell, in the moods they set, in the visuals they try out. And like, there's a safety net there. Like the movie's going to make a decent amount of money either way. It will be remembered more if you make a horror movie out of college than if you make an experimental art film out of college. It's very unlikely that someone's going to remember that movie in 30 years. But if you make a cheap slasher that has some interesting visual ideas, that will be remembered in 30 years and get like a 4K Blu-ray restoration (laughs) the way everything is right now. Yeah. And what's really disappointing about these two movies is one person (laughs) is a visual artist and played around in that playground with like visual ideas and like every scene try to see like, what's the angle here? What, what can we do visually to make this scene pop? And the other one is more of an actor. And he's like, what interesting juicy bits can I give people to play from scene to scene, which is not exciting and it not what horror is for. It makes you wish they had just worked together in that first place. Or that Coppola didn't get frustrated with studio executives and stuck through and made Francis Ford Coppola's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I assume would have been a very good movie based on the evidence oh, that we have yeah, here today. That would have been really good. Well, as consolation, we will be watching a good Frankenstein movie next episode, at least one, multiple. Uh, we're talking about the original Boris Karloff universal horror film Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. It's so good. And we're also talking about all eight of its sequels. Wow. There are eight frankenstein movies we are talking about all of them all in one go so if you thought this episode was excessive next episode will also be excessive and I, i'm so sorry that we do this to you every October. Party, baby, baby.